Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. It's good to be here with you. We are uh, in the book of Romans, busting into uh, the good news that we've been waiting for for uh, a little bit. So Romans chapter 3, um, let, let's do this, let's switch things up for you. Uh, let's, let's stand up and um, as we hear this proclaimed word, we've got to make sure we don't get into ruts where we forget that this book is not like other books. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, Romans 3, verse 21 through 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's open this up and see if there's an epic fail. If you grew up in church, the answer to every question is what? I didn't know if that was going to go okay or not. It does not matter what question you were asked. Just answer Jesus. Um, Sunday school, answer Jesus. Children's church, Jesus. VBS, Jesus. Youth group, Jesus, if you find yourself in a riveting game of Bible trivia, that actually was a thing. You answer Jesus all the time. Whether you know the answer or not, just blurt out Jesus. Uh, a key move for, for myself, I think John probably used this as well, uh, is if you're not even paying attention and you get asked a question, oh, yeah, 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 Jesus, totally, totally Jesus. I mean, who's going to get mad if you answer Jesus to a question in some sort of church setting? Odds are you may be right. And if you're not right, you're at least kind of in the ballpark. Um, well, answering Jesus to everything isn't really a bad thing overall. As we grow in our faith and become disciples, learners of Christ, followers of Christ, there, time, there comes a time where our answer to questions uh, needs to get a, a little bit more nuanced than just saying Jesus. Uh, we need to be able to understand the deeper elements of our faith. And Paul talks about this throughout his writing by saying there's a time in your faith where you need to move past milk, like eating what babies do, and you need to mature to where you digest uh, meat, heavier things. There's, there's a time for milk, but then as you mature, you move to, to meat. Now, make no mistake, I'm not advocating, and I don't think Paul would have ever advocated either, that we somehow mature past Jesus as if there's, there's better answers to Jesus. I'm just saying we need to understand the inner workings of our faith to a deeper level than just answering Jesus to every question that we have. Uh, we need to be able to explain things deeper to where we can even explain, okay, not just Jesus is the answer, but why is Jesus the answer to so many of the questions that we have, that, that's kind of what we're going at. Matt Chandler said something a couple years ago that, that stuck with me, uh, and I found it relevant to this. He says, you know, it's, it's normal to see a child in a kiddie pool, 
right, all splashing around with arm floaties on and, and maybe goggles, just having a, a great time, sticking their face in the pee pool, just having a wonderful time. But if a grown man w- with a beard is in that same kiddie pool all alone, just joyously laughing, in that same pee water, something is wrong, right? Why? Because maturity should graduate you to different water and deeper water. And that's kind of what we're headed for uh, today, to deeper waters, uh, to grasp doctrine in maybe a way that we hadn't before. And if you have grasped it in this way, then, then I hope that we'll just worship anew through this. But we want to understand some deeper things in my faith. And to, to make sure we're kind of running in the right direction, I'll even explain for the first half of my life, spanning into probably my early 20s even, I, I didn't really understand the deeper nature of things in our faith. So I grew up in church. Uh, that, that means in, in my day, man, that makes me sound old, um, Sunday school, that's before church. Sunday service, that is church. Sunday night service, that's for varsity church. And then youth groups and youth camps and all of that stuff. So, I mean, I was around Jesus-y stuff a lot. But my understanding of my faith was not very theologically precise. I'm not blaming that on other people. It's just the reality. I, I knew that Jesus was born of a virgin. I knew that he did not sin. I knew that he died on a cross, that he rose again, that he went back to heaven. And I knew that you need to believe in him if you wanted to be saved. Now, on one hand, praise God that that, like, that is all that you kind of need to know. Uh, but that isn't enough to fully understand the faith that we are walking in. And we just kind of want to dictate and understand that maturity is understanding deeper things. You can be saved without a deep theological knowledge, but to walk healthily in the faith that you proclaim, you need to understand a couple more things. So uh, I, I knew believing in Jesus was the way to be saved. But in the early half of my life, if you ask me, okay, yeah, but how does that work? Like, I don't know, you just believe. But like, why? Like, what does that do? I don't know. You just believe. Why did Jesus need to die on a cross? I don't know. You just need to believe. Why did wrath of the Father need to be satisfied? Why did the death of Jesus need to be a gift? I haven't answered any of those questions. I, just, I don't know. You just believe, man. I don't know. Ask the pastor. If you ask, so it did... Was God just really angry and then he emptied his anger on Jesus and because of that, believers could be pardoned? Essentially, God was super mad and then he let out all the mad on Jesus and so we can go to heaven. Is that kind of what happened? And that's honestly an extremely relevant question. I didn't know the answer to that. And if asked, how good do you need to be in order to be saved, to truly believe in Jesus? Do you need to be like pretty good, uh, somewhat good, conservative good? You need to have sowed all of your oats already to where you're like, I'm prepared to be good now. Like, like how good do you need to be? I don't have an answer to that either. And, and while Christianity is not first and foremost about the ability to answer questions, these questions are really important because they dictate how we live. How you answer them will filter into what you believe and how you live. How you think God saves you and what salvation actually does uh, is important because if we misunderstand salvation, we might miss the entire gospel. We may sow a false gospel. We may accidentally teach other people and ourselves something that is completely opposite of what God says about what Jesus did. The text that we are in today speaks directly into all those questions that I just mentioned. Therefore, theologians regard this text as one of the most important texts in the Bible. Let let that sink in. Giants of the faith. 
who've come before us and paved the way for where we are at now regard this text as the heart of Romans, this text uh, as the heart of, of Paul's theology, and many even regard this text as the center of the entire Bible. If that's true, it means that this text and understanding it rightly is more important than anything else right now. It's more important than the news cycle that we see right now. It's more important than, than any sporting event that you can ever go to. It's more important than, than how much money you have or how much you're set to make this year or what your 401k looks like or what kind of vacation you're going to go on. And it's much more important than any, any problem that you kind of walked into these doors with. Again, if you think I'm overselling it, if I'm trying to pump up the hype a little bit too much, these questions were the source of much bloodshed over the history of our faith. As men and women years ago gave their lives to answer these questions rightly, these questions were the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. Uh, To synthesize this down to the heart of the matter, we have a slide over this question. How can an unjust person ever hope to stand before God in judgment? This is the heart of the question, right? How can an unjust person, that, that, that's us, ever hope to stand before a holy God in judgment? Or, or even more succinctly, how are we to be saved? That's the question at hand this morning. How are we to be saved? Now, here's the breakdown of Romans so far, the very, very fast one. Romans 1, 18 Uh, through chapter 3, verse 20, we saw that we are great sinners. That's what we saw. And now in in chapter 3, 21 through 26, we learn of the greatness of Christ's saving work on our behalf. In the front side, we see that the universal human problem is exposed. That problem is sin. And then in what we're in today, the universal human problem is solved in Christ Jesus. Here is the beauty after weeks and weeks of digging into the bad news, which are even like, oh, and it was hard to see just how broken and how dark and how difficult things are. Now we arrive to the glorious good news of the gospel. Paul did all that work to show us an unfiltered view of humanity and an unfiltered view of ourselves so that we could rejoice in the full scope of God's grace now. That's why it's so meaningful in verse 21 that he opens up the text by saying, but now. We see all this darkness in this, in this terrible stuff, but now. Humanity was under wrath, guilty because of sin. We're irreligious people and religious alike, but God intervened on behalf of sinners to make a way to rescue them himself. The wording, but now, isn't just kind of a, a literary turn in the book, though. It signifies a historical turn in salvation history as well. God's saving power has invaded the world because of the coming Messiah. This is good news. The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus changed literally everything. Why? Why is it such a big deal? Why is this a turning point in salvation? Well, because as we saw in the earlier part of Romans, the entire world stands in the dock waiting for God's judgment. You and I and everyone born of woman, all of us are waiting for judgment. But now Christ has appeared and this arrival is a game changer. Before we had no way to be clean. We're moving towards judgment with no way to be clean, no way to be righteous, no way to be holy, and no way to be justified. But now there's a way where there used to be no way. This is why it's a turning point. We were in a terrible situation, but now God has made a way where there used to be no way. The words, there's gonna be several words that we'll focus on uh, through this text. The first one is going to be intervention, God intervened. 
Verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has appeared apart from the law. We saw this, the, the religious people were trying to, to use the law in order to garner some sort of, uh, of standing before God, and it wasn't working. We, we learned that no man can make themselves holy by the law. Many have tried and all have failed. This is why Paul says the law is meant to show us our need for salvation. It's never meant to save you. It's never a tool to earn you salvation. It's just to show you that you need to be saved. So as humanity approaches the judgment of God with no righteousness of their own, no holiness of their own, Paul says a righteousness has been made manifest. It has come down. It has appeared. And through faith in Jesus Christ, that righteousness is now available for all who believe, both Jew and Greek. This is the glorious news. Righteousness is available to all regardless regardless of, of skin color, education, financial situation, social status, or anything like that. If a person were to ask, okay, Paul, why, like, why is salvation available to all who would believe? His answer is in the text, because there is no distinction. Everyone needs it. Why? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have, I have, our family has, all have need. Look at what Paul said. There's a righteousness available for all who believe. Why? For all have sinned and need a righteousness that is greater than their own. We are presented with a universal problem against sin, and then a, a universal uh, fix to that problem, Jesus. The second term that we're going to focus on is justification. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus in the text. Martin Luther says this, justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls, and if the church does not get this right, the church ceases to be an authentic church. You've heard me make reference many times. There's a lot of good churches around. In Columbia, there's a lot of good churches around. And there's some terrible places that call themselves churches as well. This is the article by which I decide if something is authentic or not. Do they preach justification by faith alone? If not, they're not a church. They can be nice people. They can be a group of people, but they are not a church. Well, the main question we're looking at is how are we to be saved? Justification as it is at the heart of how salvation actually works. Remember, we're getting deeper than just the answer, Jesus. R.C. Sproul is helpful in explaining this concept of justification for us. He says to understand justification, you have to know uh, justification through faith uh, does not mean divine pardon. More specifically, God does not pardon sinners at the cross. We hear that, go, oh, I thought that's exactly what he did. Give me a second to break this down, how we understand what pardon means. Uh, at the end of a U.S. president's term, it has become normative for them to hand out pardons, right? And, and this pardon is more or less a forgiving of a, of a criminal and setting them free. A criminal does not have to pay for their actions. They don't have to pay for what they've done. Nobody has to pay. They just kind of get away with it. The charges vanish. There is no resolution. There's no restitution. Nothing is actually fixed. It's just, boom, you're not in trouble anymore. While forgiveness is involved in salvation, we cannot think of salvation as a divine pardon because it's not as if our, our, our sin just vanishes and is forgotten in a pardon. Our charges don't vanish. Why? Because they got paid for. There's no pardon as if God's like, ah, no, no, no big deal anymore. It's like you, get, you get a freebie. No, no, no. 
Our charges were there, and the full weight of our charges, Jesus paid for all of them. They were not pardoned, they were paid. Justification is the act by which God judicially declares a person righteous in his sight. So God stands as judge. These are, these are our, our court and, and criminal terms. And God as judge stands. And when a judge makes a declaration, like you don't play with it or you get thrown in jail, God declares that person is righteous in my sight. This is what happens in justification. Justification means God looks at you and declares you just. He calls you just. This happens first when you're saved, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and then comes judgment where every soul will go upon death. Can, can we just say it's a good thing to be justified before you get to judgment? God declares you righteous before your judgment comes. That, that's good. Now, the issue of why Catholics and Protestants have fought for years is, on what grounds does God make that declaration? I know that I know that this is going to be more weighty and there's going to be just more terms and things in here, but don't, don't lose me in this. How can God look at us when we are dead in our sins and our trespasses and say, you are a just person? That's at the heart of this. How does that work? When manifestly we are not just people, how does God look at us and call us just when we are not just people? How in the world does God do that? Now, if you're tracking with me, this is the good news of the gospel, God pronounces people just. He makes that legal declaration over them, astonishingly enough, when they're not just. He calls dirty people clean, and so they are. Now, it seems that Rome back then had the same issue that they have today. Catholics believe that before God will declare a person to be righteous, before he will justify them, they have to become just. Are you following? He doesn't declare them just. They believe that, okay, you need to actually be just before God will call you just. Now, to be fair, uh, they believe that faith and grace is involved in that, but they don't believe that God will declare a person just until he sees that they actually are. You have to meet the bar, and then God will call you righteous. But you have to meet a righteousness bar to do that. Now, this is why they've added categories like mortal sin into their language, and this is why things like purgatory are invented. If you die with sin and you cannot have sin and be near God, you have to go to purgatory to be purged where you pay for, pray for three years or three million years until your sin is gone. They believe in justification. God makes you righteous right then, like right at that moment. And if you're not righteous, there's a problem. Here's the deal. The original language doesn't say that God makes us righteous in salvation. The original language says again that God declares you are righteous. He says it to you. You're, you're not it, so he calls you it. He calls you it, so you are it. We're, giving a re, uh, we're, giving a ren, we're given a legal rendering of righteous. Now, again, if you're thinking, okay, like you are nerding out really hard on this. Like what is the deal? Why are we diving so deep into this? Why is bloodshed over that small thing? Well, that small thing is everything. In this thing, will then change the way that you live and how your salvation is walked out. Here, here, let me explain. If God were to judge us tonight, all of us here, not, not together, individually, if he were to judge all of us tonight, what would he find? Would he find sin in your life? Would he find remaining struggle? Would he find remnants of unrighteousness? If he was to judge you at nine o'clock tonight, would he find remnants of unrighteousness in you? 
Could he possibly declare us to be just tonight upon the evidence of our life that he sees? Could he do that? If we had to be righteous, perfectly righteous ourselves to be saved, then I don't know about you, but I'm going to live a terrified life. Why? Because I know myself and I am not just. I am not righteous. I am not clean. If I have to be and meet the bar, then I am crippled with anxiety. If God judges you tonight and it's your justice, you should be afraid. This is precisely like why the ground for our justification cannot be our own resume. This is why we can't rely on our own righteousness in our own souls to be saved. We rely on what theologians call an alien righteousness in salvation, which is just a way to say a righteousness that comes from outside and is given to us. A righteousness that comes from outside and is credited to our account. This is why the, the Latin phrase has been used for years and years and years and years, simul justus et peccator, which is a, a saying that means that Christians are simultaneously just and a sinner. This is what happens at the moment that you are saved in Christ Jesus. Though you're still a sinner, you haven't met a bar of righteousness. Though you are not just yourself, by faith, the righteousness of Jesus gets credited to your account. And on that basis, God declares that you are just. Not because you've been just, but because your faith is in the one who is just. This is why verse 24 says that we are justified by grace as a gift because you didn't earn it. You didn't meet the bar. You didn't live up to it. Someone else gave you an alien righteousness that wasn't yours and you get to reap the benefits as a gift of that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. Let's look at this. For our sake, we know who our is. He, this is God, made him Jesus. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. This is what we believe about the cross. This is what the the doctrine of, of imputation, or more specifically, double imputation says. On the cross, the sin of those who believe in Jesus is imputed on or credited to Jesus And the righteousness that is Jesus is imputated or credited to those who believe. So Jesus becomes the sinner who is being punished even though he never sinned. And we sinners become righteous in the eyes of God because we get his righteousness credited to us. When I describe this to my boys, I describe it as a a righteousness grade card. You know how you get grade cards in school? Well, if your faith is in Jesus, his righteousness grade card is put on your account and yours, it is not all A's, gets put on his account and that's a beautiful exchange. This is what imputation is. You are not pardoned, you are paid for. Your righteousness is an alien righteousness. So if asked, because of the cross, does God just pardon believers? Then our answer should be no. No, he doesn't just give us a pass. The answer is God pours out the wrath that all of our sin deserved onto Jesus so that bill is paid in full and the cup is empty on a bloody cross. And on that same cross, the righteousness of Jesus was credited to me. Again, how does this doctrine prove to be meaningful in the here and the now? Why do our answers actually matter? Well, we're freed up to live in the perfection of Jesus knowing that we aren't perfect and this is a good thing. Okay, what does this look like? 
if we rest in the righteousness of another, then it means that you don't need to crumble in anxiety, fear, and trembling all the time when you mess up or accidentally sin or see your weakness. Why? Because even in light of the areas that you still fall short, the legal declaration that God gave you of just still stands. I have been justified in Christ. Yes, I messed up there. Yes, I don't like that. No, he hasn't taken away his legal declaration. The judge has declared the gavel has fallen. The cup is empty. I get to understand that the sanctification process in my life will be bumpy and God will not turn on me. Then when the enemy whispers accusations into our ears in our vulnerable moments, so many times I think we wonder, well, what does the work of the enemy look like in our life? Well, he's the liar and the deceiver, and he, he's the one who's trying to convict you and oppress you all the time. So when the enemy just whispers into your ear that you are worthless, that you are broken, that you're unlovable, that God is regretting anything that he ever did for you or gave for you, and you're such a disappointment, and you're so weak, we can declare, well, it's not my resume that matters, though. It's Christ's. It's the righteousness of Christ that God sees in me and he is satisfied in. Yes, I am imperfect. That's why I believe in the one who is perfect. It is not me, but Christ in me. All of those things are true. So I worship even more with hands raised high. It's not my resume. This is what faith looks like. Verse 24 says, we are justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is the next term. I won't even pretend that we're going to dive into the depths of this. We're going to barely even give a surface layer uh, to, to the word redemption. But redemption in this text is a concept that's all over the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. To redeem someone biblically is to buy them out of slavery to have a debt of slavery over you and to buy them out, to pay the price that is owed, to free them from a burden of slavery. In the Old Testament, in Exodus, we see the story of God's people being set free from their slavery to Egypt, from their enslaver and their horrific situation. Paul is pointing out for us to see that the cross is the new Exodus for God's people. When we put our faith in Jesus' work on the cross for our sin, we are liberated and we are free from our slavery and our bondage to sin. This is the message of the Bible. God didn't send Jesus to enslave you, to hurt you, to steal your best life from you. He sent Jesus to bleed for you and in that bleeding free you so that you may be free from the burden that you could never escape your sin. He has come in to throw the shackles of sin off of you, open the gate and said, you can now be free, my son and my daughter. You are not enslaved by the gospel of Jesus. You're set free by it. This is the message we need to understand. Verse 25 and 26. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that we might be just and the justifier uh, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Propitiation is another word that Paul busts out in these last couple verses. And it sounds way more dangerous and scary than it is. It means to satisfy the demands of justice. Or in biblical terms, it means to satisfy the wrath of God. What Paul is, is reminding us is that the wrath of God has been satisfied. 
through Jesus at the cross when we believe in him for the problem of our sin. This, again, is incredibly good news for believers that they get to put their life in upon salvation. There's no wrath left for you. The cup is empty. The bill is paid. The, the, the debt is completely gone. If you keep sinning, if you live all of your life, right, like what Paul talked about before and he'll talk about later, if we sin all the more so that grace should abound, we're like, no, nah, it's got a free pass. My dad don't care. It's cool. Salvation, woo, grace. If that's your mindset, you're not saved. I don't care what you say. But if you are saved and you mess up, you don't have to look for lightning. That's what's in this text. God has been satisfied fully for your past, present, and future sins because of Jesus. So you don't need to worry when you fall short or you mess up or make a bad decision that God is going to pick the cup back up and fill it back up and look to dump it on your head. There is no reigniting of wrath. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because the whole bill has been paid already. He's paid the bill for the sins that you don't even know you're going to commit yet. You are redeemed. The price is paid. The shackles are off. You are free. This is where peace comes from in the life of a believer. Though things on earth may not go our way, though pain still comes often, there's no more wrath that we are under. We are truly free. The wrath that was once ours through Jesus has now turned to favor. That's the other side of propitiation. Not only is there no more wrath for you because the demands of justice are met, but where you used to be under wrath, now you're actually under the favor of God. What does that mean? It means come hell or high water, Jesus has still met the greatest need that we will ever have on the cross. Will you have pain? Will you shed tears? Will you have frustration? Will you mess up on this side of eternity? Yes, yes. Yes, and yes, but are you still looked at as just before holy God? And will God through Jesus one day wipe away all of your tears and say, well done, my good and faithful servant, as we get ushered into a creation that's no longer broken by sin? That's also true, yes. See, Paul lands this section by saying, that God, through salvation, shows his righteousness. Salvation is not about our righteousness or what we can wrangle or what we do. Salvation is about God's righteousness given to God's people through God's Son. Jesus triumphs over sin and death by coming to be the perfect Lamb of God. He is the one who is just, and through his work on the cross and faith, he becomes the justifier, the one that makes sinners clean. So, so here, the, here the, the, the kind of weaving Christ is just, he comes to be the justifier and stands over us and calls us justified. This is the line of reasoning when your faith is in Jesus for what he's done at the cross. So let's look back to the initial questions that, that we asked. Why did Jesus need to die on the cross? Well, to pay for the sins that he didn't commit to be the spotless lamb of God. Why did God's wrath need to be satisfied so we could be free of sin's punishment and never have to worry that his wrath is going to come back because it's all emptied out? Why did his sacrifice need to be a gift so that we don't have to rely on our resume to meet a bar to make God love us? Does God pardon sinners because of the cross? No, not at all. The full debt is paid at the cross. Does one need to be righteous to be saved? No, they get called righteous when they are saved. Does a believer need to worry about God's wrath ever again? No, it's been fully satisfied. The cup is empty. They are sons and daughters, no longer enemies, but they're part of the family of God. I want to be careful and not give a ton of action steps to trying to add a bunch of spin 
to the end of a text or a message like this. I just want to remind us of the beauty that this text contains for our souls. We are more sinful than we have ever imagined. And Jesus and his sacrifice covers all of that with his righteousness. The way into it, just put your faith into him. What have we been saying all through Romans? This faith in Jesus, it's not to be assumed. It's not to be earned. It's not to be bargained for. It happens and it comes around when you lay your pride down and call out to God saying, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Will you save me, Father? I confess my need. I want to follow Jesus. My hope is in you. And as we sit here today and we go through this text, and the hope is that all of us have done that or will do that today, that our faith would be in Jesus and the reality of what Jesus has done and the confessing of him and our need for him, that that would be the reality for everyone here. You and I will never be able to pay the bill that our sin has racked up. So today you can stand in a place where Jesus will pay that bill if you ask him to. And I pray that we'll worship in light of that. Why do we worship? We're declaring what Jesus has done and thanking him. You have paid it all. I want to remind us again why we came to the book of Romans. The, the hope is that we would grow in our faith together. I pray that as we've gone through this, that you understand your faith more, the inner workings of it, what Jesus has done, that you understand how to see your life and your faith in the world that you live in and that we mature in a way that we can see the reality of what the Bible says Jesus has done and apply that in the world around us, that we would be confident, that we wouldn't be cocky or mean or rude to other people, but there's a confidence in understanding the faith that we have. This is part of maturity. We want to be saved. We want to understand the salvation that we proclaim. This is what we're able to do through this text. Church, if your faith is in Jesus, you have been justified. God calls you just today. If your faith is in Jesus, Christ's righteousness has been imputed to your life. Your account is full of his righteousness. If your faith is in Jesus, you have been redeemed. You are right now free from sin. Your debt is paid. If your faith is in Jesus, God's wrath for you is satisfied and it doesn't exist for you anymore. If your faith is in Jesus, see the beauty that God did all of that. He intervened. He made the plan. He came and fulfilled the plan. He's worthy of our worship this morning because of that. And you guys can come back up. We're going to take communion today. Anyone who your faith is in Jesus, you are free to take. You don't have to be a member here or anything like that. We would ask that your faith be in Jesus or you abstain from taking though. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, here's the beauty. When we take, we are proclaiming all of the things that we just spoke about. I'm justified through you and you alone. God looks at me as clean because of your work on the cross. The wrath of God is empty because your blood was spilled. So when you take the bread and when you take the cup, you're remembering, Jesus, you've worked where I could never do the work. You've covered everything that I need. So I pray that your heart would be encouraged as you take, that you would be built up. I understand that it's a crummy, nasty cracker and some juice, but it's the beauty of us coming together and seeing what Jesus has done, the regular building of being reminded what he has done that is good for our souls. Would you remember what he has done for you? And then worship in light of it. 
You weren't pardoned, and you don't have to worry about what you mess up with next week, bringing your wrath back. You're paid for in full. You are clean. If judgment happens tonight, the beauty is the righteousness of Jesus stands in your place if your faith is in Jesus. That's a great place to be. We stay in worship.